Hey everyone, welcome to a bonus episode of Vanished in the Valley. I am your host, Athena, and today we won't have Ken as a guest host, unfortunately. It's just little old me. And I wanted to discuss some of the vanishings in the Emerald Triangle and its surrounding areas. So, if you're not familiar with the Emerald Triangle, I'll catch you up a bit. Starting back in the 1960s, a group of people decided to move there to kind of live this hippie, off-the-grid lifestyle. And while they were carving out an existence amongst the forest and nature, a few of them decided to start growing marijuana. That decision would kick off what is now known as the Emerald Triangle. Just so you have an idea, this area is the main producer and supplier of marijuana to the entire United States. The Emerald Triangle was also the first in the country to grow marijuana that was not from Mexico. They grew marijuana that was so much more superior in terms of the THC, the taste, the smell. Everything was superior to the Mexican dirt weed that everyone here in the United States was used to at that time. A couple of the residents flew to the Middle East and acquired a few pounds of the Middle Eastern strains they had there. Um, and like I was saying, it provided a quality that had never, ever been seen in the United States before. It basically changed the face of marijuana forever, permanently. The strains that we're still smoking now is the strains that, you know, originated from this group that moved there in the 60s. So, they really, they really did something for all of that. Now everything is legal, so it's a little bit different. But at the time, since everything was illegal, many of the people that lived there were forced to live what many would call an outlaw lifestyle. The residents themselves never considered themselves to be criminals. They just, you know, they, they used the proceeds of their marijuana money to build schools and hospitals for their communities. They also helped out their neighbors when they were in need. The residents survived like this for many decades. Just as with everything else in life though, all good things must come to an end at some point. The police and the DEA targeted the citizens on a seasonal basis. It was basically a game of cat and mouse. The growers would get raided, then all the neighbors would learn to camouflage their plants better, they would come up with ingenious ideas and spray paint their plants to blend in better. They would kind of get it to grow underneath the huge forest trees to make it so you couldn't see it from the air. It was just, like I said, really a game of cat and mouse. The law enforcement community was so against everything that was going on up there, they eventually formed a program called CAMP. And what that stands for was Campaign Against Marijuana Planting. So CAMP com was composed of local, state, and federal agencies, and it was organized expressly to eradicate the illegal grows up there. There was over 110 agencies that were participating in CAMP. The first time the United States Army was ever used in an operation for drugs was one of these camp campaigns. Um, they literally deployed the United States Army to help eradicate the grows up there. They meant business, okay? 
Camp included the DEA, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, California National Guard, California State Parks, California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Dozens of local police and sheriff departments from across the state also participated in the program. So, can you imagine you're like growing on some mountaintop and suddenly like it seems like the entire United States Army is after your ass? Yeah, that's probably when a lot of general residents said, nope, I'm out, time to leave. <laughs> but anyways, so the residents survived like this for many decades, like I said. After the police, DEA, and the army decided to target these people that were growing a plant, a lot of the original growers just decided it was too much. So a lot of the old residents moved out and new people moved in. The sense of community was eventually lost and crime started to go up. The police presence on a daily basis was basically non-existent. Law enforcement themselves have stated that they didn't like going up into the mountains by the growers for many reasons. It was a long drive that took up a lot of gas, and gas is expensive. And, you know, sheriffs are directly funded from taxpayers, and there's not a lot of money in the area. The sheriffs aren't going to have a lot of money. So they didn't want their funds getting eaten up on gas. Um, they also felt it was dangerous because the residents didn't want them there in the first place. Eventually, with these new residents came crime, and people started to vanish. The police could no longer turn a blind eye what was going on on the mountains. Some arrests had been made, and a few graves of people have been found, but the majority stay missing, and the people responsible are not charged. Not everyone that goes missing has their hand in the marijuana growing industry. As a matter of fact, the two women I'm about to tell you about had no part in any of the growing situation. One was only 15 years old. And technically, their towns aren't even in the Emerald Triangle. They're just bordering on it. But that right there, you know, increases your risk if you're living in this area. Their little town sits on the northernmost border of the Emerald Triangle, but I decided to highlight their case because the person responsible for their vanishing has not been brought to justice and these two women have not been brought home to their families. So tonight I'm going to tell you about the first one of these women that went missing in McLeod, California. Her name is Hannah Zaccagalini. She was last seen leaving a friend's house in McLeod, California on the evening of June 4th, 1997. So she's 15 years old. Imagine this. She's walking to her house, located one block away, and she never arrived home and has not been seen since. The circumstances of her disappearance are unknown at this time, but what is known is that she's missing from Debbie and Edward Henline, which is the same house that Karen Marrow was last seen at. Detectives believe the disappearance of Karen Marrow, also in the cloud, is connected to the case of Hannah. Their house has been searched several times, but no clues have been found. Ed and Debbie Henline borrowed Hannah's mother's van the day after Hannah went missing to run errands and returned the van in pristine condition. They said they cleaned it for her to thank her for letting them use it. A few days later, Ed burned a perfectly good houseboat that he had dry docked in his backyard. NecroSearch, the FBI, and cadaver dogs have never found any remains on the property. Whatever was there has been burned or taken elsewhere. So let me give you a little timeline just so you kind of get what's going on with Hannah. 
So June 4th, 1997, McLeod High School student Hannah Zaccagalini, who's 15, disappears from McLeod. Deputies say the last person to see her was Ed Hinline Sr. outside his house. And there's several witnesses to corroborate that. June 8th is when they borrowed Hannah's mom's van just to run some errands and then returned the van immaculately clean. Late June 1997, sheriff's detectives ask FBI agents for assistance in the Zaccagalini case. So, fast forward to the summer of 1997, detectives do about four consent searches at the Henline home. Nothing's found. So, now we're going to fast forward to spring of next year, so it's April 16th, 1998. Sheriff's detectives serve a search warrant at the Henline home. This is the first search warrant served concerning Zaka Galini and the Mero cases. A few more will be served, and I'll tell you about them in a minute. Ed and Debbie are arrested on suspicion of welfare fraud. They're suspected of writing checks on Mero's account from the time she disappeared to December 1997 and failing to report the extra income. So these pieces of work were basically stealing the uh, disability income of the other woman I'm going to tell you about. And don't, she's the only reason they ever served any jail time. And it wasn't because she was missing or Hannah was missing. It had to do with money, of course. Missing disability money. So after that, April 30th, 1998, Ed and Debbie plead guilty to perjury in connection to the fraudulent acquisition of funds from the checking account of Merrill. They're sentenced to pay $2,000 and pay, placed on three years probation. Like whoop de doo come on. June 8th and 9th, 1998, authorities served two search warrants at the Henline home. These are the second and third search warrants served there. Two body-searching cadaver dogs scour the home and other areas of their property and different areas in McLeod for two days. Now check this out, guys. June 1998 through June 12th of 2012, nothing. Nothing is done on the case. There's no progression. It doesn't sound like there's any tips. Nothing happens for like, uh, what, 13 and a half, 14 years? But then, November 15th, 2012, Ed and his wife, Deborah, are arrested for the murder of Hannah. <laughs> Don't get your hopes up, though. Just wait. His son, Ed Henline Jr., is arrested on November 17th, 2012. For conspiracy and accessory to commit a crime related to the murder of Hannah. So, you think everything's all great, they're getting arrested, all that fun stuff? No. It's for whatever reason, the district attorney decided to drop the charges. So, they're still free. They never served a minute in jail, you know, for any type of murder or anything. They only served some, they didn't even serve time for the, the check fraud and stealing all that money. They got probation and had to pay back $2,000 to the state. So it's just like, it's crazy. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Hannah, what she looks like. She has brown hair, brown eyes. She's five foot five, weighed 120 pounds, and her date of birth was October 11th, 1981. It's... I'll put a, a picture up of her. She's really pretty. She had super on point eyebrows, even for back in the day in 1998. Let me tell you. 
um, there's just like there's no clues and the local law enforcement kind of feel like the residents there are afraid of Ed and Debbie Henline. They're hoping that as time passes, somebody that knows something will call them and give them a tip that will lead to a body or lead to some type of evidence so these two pieces of shit you know have to serve justice and maybe maybe some of these people's families can actually get their loved ones back we want to know like how how is it that they get arrested when supposedly the local sheriffs and the local district attorney are working so hard together but then the district attorney drops the charges it's like where does that come from it's just it kills me how does this happen all the time and you know they're not suspects in one murder they're suspects in two and if there's two we know about you gotta wonder if there's ones that nobody ever reported because for some reason that happens all the time as i've told you here before so these two murder uh, alleged murderers are just home chilling in mcleod california and nothing's been done so let me tell you about the other girl now missing well still missing i should say her name is karen marrow and earlier i was telling you how the only charges that ed and deborah actually got were from stealing from this woman um they were stealing her disability money she had actually had a liver transplant so i don't know if any of you guys are familiar with transplants but for life these people have to take medications so their organ won't be rejected by their body they take a medication to kind of kill their immune system and as long as their immune system stay low that whatever organ so for her that liver will be able to stay in function in her body so without this medication she would definitely die and the police were in contact with UCSF who were in charge of her medications and it turns out that she wasn't even refilling her prescriptions so let me get to Karen and I'll tell you all about her disappearance. So Karen Elizabeth Nichtel Merrow. She went missing on February 28, 1997 and uh, she was 27 years old uh, when she went missing. She is 5'8 and described as 170 pounds. So it turns out she was actually dating Ed Henline Jr. She was separated from her husband at the time, and I guess had been living at their house in McLeod, California. Um, she wasn't reported missing until October 1997, which is eight months after she disappeared. Her family says that they had tried to report her missing, but was told by law enforcement she's an adult and she can go missing if she wants. I guess what kind of cracked the case on that is the police actually contacted UCSF and they confirmed that she had not been filling her prescriptions. And it, I guess what happened is in 1994 she had a liver transplant and like I was saying earlier she has to take anti-rejection medications and the hospital confirmed she had not refilled any of the prescriptions since her disappearance. So basically at that point like 8-10 months she had not gotten any medicine. So that in itself would kill her. She has since been declared deceased, and unfortunately her father passed away too. He passed away on May 23, 2011, 
but her mom is still alive and she is waiting for Karen to come home and to get some justice in this case. And it seems like this couple, they actually didn't even get charged with stealing from her because she wasn't there to make a report. What they ended up getting charged for was not declaring the extra income. So the good old IRS got them. That's it. No, no charges for the missing two women. No charges from stealing from missing the one of the missing women. They get charged for tax fraud. Um, law enforcement, is, you know, since this time has done a few search warrants. Like I said, a couple based just on Karen. Nothing was ever found. Um, it's just like so much time went by from the time these women disappeared to the time that law enforcement actually got involved and did searches that they had been seen burning down an entire houseboat. It just was just enough time for them to get rid of any type of evidence that they wanted to. So I, I know, you know, this case did happen a long time ago, and since then, law enforcement procedures have changed. But it was just this attitude of law enforcement of not wanting to get involved in missing cases that allowed so many people across our country to go missing without any recourse from the people responsible for their vanishings. So Karen and Hannah are missing still, and Ed and Deborah have not been charged, either Ed, Ed Jr. or Ed Sr., the mom of Karen and both of the parents of Hannah want justice. They're extremely active in this case still. I'm going to try over the next week or so to try to get a hold of the family members of these two missing women to see what other information I can dig up. And I'm sure there's a lot that's not written on the internet. Because everything I've just given you, this whole story I've told you, is just from stuff I've pieced together on different websites from the internet. If you guys have any information, you can let me know. You can contact me at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com. Or you can check out our Facebook, our Instagram. And like I said before, our website is up, vanishedinthevalley.com. But it's a total shit show. It's not even, like, finished yet. We are still working on it. Uh, or you can contact the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department. Their phone number is area code 530 Eight four one two nine zero zero, and it's case number nine seven dash two five seven three for Karen. I hope, yeah, maybe next week I'll have some more information for you. Um, the law enforcement department, all the different departments, have said they think there's other witnesses, but they're just too afraid to come forward. So hopefully, I can work my Athena magic and get some people to talk because we want to know what happened to these women and we want them to get justice and we want their families to have them back so they can have a proper burial. So guys, let us know if you know anything about these two women. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Kenny. What's up, It is PSA time. Oh, let's do it. All right. So since we were talking a lot about child exploitation, I figured we would do our PSA today on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Sound like a plan to me. Okay, so let me just throw some numbers and statistics at you just so you kind of have an idea of what this center is dealing with. And they're a nonprofit organization. I think John Walsh is actually the one that started them about 30 years ago. Okay. But 91% of their cases are endangered runaways. 
Uh, and just so you know, 2019, they handled 16.9 million reports. So, yeah. 4% were family abductions, 4% were critically missing young adults, which are like 18 to 20 year olds, but less than 1% are a stranger abduction. Wow. Right? So, this center has actually recovered 985 children, um, and that was directly related to the Amber Alert system. Oh, that's so, right? Uh, so, I went and checked out their website. Um, you just basically go to missingkids.org, and on their front page, if you go all the way to the bottom, you can actually donate money and help them out. Or, you know, you have a tip, maybe like somebody's missing, or, you know, you want to check on somebody, you can call them at 1-800-THE-LOST. So, go there, check it out, go check them out on the internet. If you want to donate, that would be awesome, because all of these services, they're non-profit, and they just basically survive on donations from people like our listeners and us. All the help they can get. 100%. So, guys, go check them out. They do an awesome service that is obviously needed. If We have uh, 16.9 million reports. Yeah, yeah. and it's like everything from child porn on the Internet to child exploitation to child enticement. It covers all kinds of stuff. So go check it out, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot.